Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You're watching the 2016 Olympic windsurfing competition from Rio. And no surprise, Kyone, as Heat 3 comes into the turn around the buoy, Great Britain's Nick Dempsey has a two-length lead. A personal sidelight, Nick visited his mom, a retired animal control officer in the hospital, and promised her she'd watch him win from her hospital bed. Wow, a promise to a dying mom. Oh, no, she was just in for a hip replacement surgery. She's totally fine. I see. And look, floating in the water right in front of Dempsey is an old TV set. There has been a problem with junk tossed into these waters. A personal story about that TV set. It belonged to the Vieira family here in Rio. And when their dog Isca died, Mr. Vieira decided the family had missed a lot of outdoor walks with Isca because they were spending too much time watching TV. So that's how their set wound up in the solid waste stream and got out into the harbor. I don't think that's relevant. The name Isca means fish bait. Please stop. Wow, uh, what's that stuff floating right in front of the windsurfers? That's number two. We've seen a lot of number two in the water at these aquatic events. A tragic consequence of the unconquerable pollution problem here. There's a heartwarming personal story about that particular number two. You really have to shut up. No, seriously, I think it helps the viewers by putting a human face on the number two. We're not going to do that. How about if it came from some people who got Zika virus right before the government was overthrown here? Uh, did it? I'm just saying what if. I'm losing my mind. Today on The Nose, is Brazil too scary for the Olympics? Also, Nate Silver is tired of apologizing, and we're tired of the David Foster Wallace graduation speech. And now he sells clothespins and Purell on the beach in Rio. Colin McEnroe. So, yeah, we're going to begin by talking about the Olympics today. Uh, it's an unusually fraught a set of conditions uh, at these Olympics. We're used to Olympics that have problems. Uh, I guess we're wondering, do these Olympics have so many more problems than usual that we should think about them a little bit differently? And then we will, in fact, talk about uh, the war between the data journalists and the dino journalists and how uh, Nate Silver, who was the darling of the last two election cycles, uh, predicting pretty much everything right in 2008 and 2012, has found himself writing a 6,000-word memoir almost about uh, why things didn't go quite right or haven't gone quite right so far. We're still quite early in this election cycle. Uh, then we'll, we'll also talk about commencement speeches and particularly an online literary journal takedown uh, of uh, David Foster Wallace and his famous uh, graduation speech, which got turned into a little book that you could buy next to the cash register sometimes. Uh, and if we have time, also uh, a, a patent application for a, a sticky self-driving car so that when it hits you, you don't go flying off. You stick right to it. Um, we may not have time for that one, but it's, it is great. All right. So that's what lies ahead. Uh, here's who's in the studio. James Hanley is co-founder of Trinity's uh, amazing cine studio. Uh, Luis Figueroa, also at Trinity College, where he's an associate professor of history. And Tracy Wu Fastenberg is director of development at the Mark Twain House and Museum. All right, let's talk about those Olympics. Um, you know, we're used to Olympics where there are some issues about uh, doping, although these Olympics may have even more issues than usual because of the latest uh, uh, kind of set of disclosures uh, from 
uh, one of the uh, people who was doping the Russian team or says he was doping the Russian team last time around. And there are always a lot of questions about the siting of the Olympics and what kind of money gets spent on what kind of corrupt basis uh, for these sites. Uh, and then other questions about whether or not these countries spend too much money at the expense of their citizenry to get these things and then build the infrastructure. It's going to cost Brazil at least $25 billion, $25 billion it doesn't usually, doesn't really have. But beyond that, there are some real health problems here. There were health problems from the very beginning uh, with unstemmable and unquenchable uh, pollution, uh, all kinds of different uh, biohazards in the waters where some of the aquatic games will, will take place. Uh, and now there's the Zika outbreak, which is for real, and it's kind of, you know, Brazil's one of its big uh, areas. It's not on the fringes. It's right at the center. Uh, and uh, then there's re regime change and the Brazilian government happening in the middle of all this. So, James, this does, I mean, I guess there's no way to walk away from the Olympics. They talk about something that's too big to fail, but you almost wonder, I mean, does that mean we're really walking into a disaster with our eyes wide open? Well, it seems to be like a, uh, I, I don't know where to begin with in terms of disaster. I mean, there's so many things about it and this enormous amount of money in a country which has just had a coup, which has replaced the government with, I think, almost all white people in a country that is nearly half black. And you wouldn't know that from looking at the demonstrations on the street and looking at reporting about Brazil. So you have that as a backdrop. And then you've got this incredible dysfunction of government that hasn't been capable, really, of doing basic things like providing clean water, even clean water to swim in. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, it, it, it's and, and the thought of the 25 billion. Yes, it's prestige. But in the current atmosphere, it seems almost to me it's almost time to sort of call a reset in a way that that, for instance, uh, the, the industrialization of doping, which the description of Sochi sounded like. I mean, they were able to get into a building, a secure building and bore holes in the wall and pass <laughs> phony urine samples <laughs> through the wall. I mean, <laughs> What are they planning for this one? Um, <laughs> Maybe it should just be a separate competition category, you know, just how much innovation you show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. And you right. should get medals for stuff like boring the hole in the wall. I mean, you know, nobody <laughs> thought about doing that before. You should, you and should, then you could sell the book about what you did. <laughs> right. You, you should get something for that. But, you know, I mean, uh, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, if you were uh, – uh, first of all, Zika is a very dangerous virus for everybody, but it's especially mm -hmm. dangerous for women and women of childbearing age. Uh, most women Olympic athletes are of childbearing age, uh, many of the women journalists who will be assigned to go down and cover the Olympics, same deal. And then you look at this, and, and A, there's the danger of contracting it, and according to this uh, 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 piece in this Harvard Health Journal, um, there's also the danger of bringing it back, bringing it back to whatever, you know, if you're going to have uh, these millions and millions of people walking into a Zika hot, hot zone, they're going to walk back to wherever they're from in the first place. Right. And it's not, I mean, it, it's more dangerous for women of childbearing age, but also for men uh, because it can be transmitted sexually from what we're hearing. And, and so pretty much everybody is at risk of um, bringing back quite the horrific souvenir. Personally, if, if I were in the position of having to go down there for work or competing, I'd think twice, um, not just about the Zika, but uh, I picture this water as being one of those things you throw something in there and it just like instantly dissolves like it's acid. Um, and we've been hearing about that particular problem for so long that, that it sort of shocks me that things haven't 
progressed in, in finding an alternative because it's not like this is a new problem. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it should be addressed. I think we should be worried to a certain extent. I know we were talking about possible fear mongering um, and, and sort of what are we being told? What's the truth? But I think there are enough things that are sort of converging on the apocalypse here that we might want to pay attention a little bit. Yeah, if you want to get sort of a, a handle on uh, on the water problem, the health problem, it's ESPN's, ESPN's, I think it's called Outside the Lines, it has about last February published this very long and a very amazing and very disturbing piece. Uh, it's not just one problem. It's like eight problems. But, Luis, the other part of this, of course, is for the athletes themselves, they're almost not capable of probably making a rational decision about this. They have done nothing but prepare themselves for at least the last three and a half to four years, you know, grueling seven-day-a-week schedules. Uh, if you say to them, you know, maybe you shouldn't go down there and swim in that water, I don't think that they could even think about that rationally, given the kind of emotional sunk cost that they've got. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, let me clarify a little bit something, is that the waters that are polluted um, are not all the ocean or uh, the bay mm -hmm. uh, of all saints, as it's called, um, uh, waters in Rio. So it's certain areas of the older part of the town, mm -hmm. okay? The areas of Copacabana and Ipanema, which are more ritzy, those, you know, I've been there, the people are or bathing there, I don't see much of a problem. It's certain areas, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that it's to diminish uh, the importance of this issue. Um, just to clarify, and it's for the people who will be competing in certain aquatic sports that require the competition using the ocean waters and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, not exactly for, like, the normal swimming pool competitions and whatnot. Right. Uh, but having said that, yes, this is a problem uh, from the perspective of the athletes. Um, not only the Zika barriers, there are other complications with these Olympics. Um, see, Olympics are designed, and the people, the reason certain countries, certain cities bid for them or for the World Cup is because there's notion that they will spur economic development in, let's say, infrastructure f that will be there for the future in transportation or, or sometimes where the athletes will live, it's a residential area that will be... Uh, inhabited afterwards, or tourism, or whatever. But in fact, the, the, the economic multiplier, as they say, economics of these events, um, is not as large and long-lasting as people think. It's like the stadiums, like the yard goats, or whatever they call, you know, all these stadiums in the United States. There's a professor at Smith College, Andrew Simbalis, who's done extensive work on these things. So from the perspective of what the athletes will find, even more, for me, serious than the, the war, is the political and security situation in the country, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, we take on the one hand the political crisis. We can talk about that. Brazil now is experiencing for the last couple of years more street demonstrations, political street demonstrations than any country in the world. Uh, so we can talk about that. But also the fact that it's, um, they're going to spend enormous amount of money to deploy between 85 and maybe even 100,000 troops police and military troops, in order to, quote-unquote, secure the city and secure the sites. And based on the experience of the World Cup, this will mean locking down center neighborhoods, limiting the ability of local residents from certain areas to move around the city, even in some cases even go to their jobs or whatever. Um, and in the experience of the World Cup, in Rio in particular, the demonstrators continue to demonstrate during the World Cup. 
So the police had to be mobilized and the military even more, and there were these confrontations. And I suspect that there will be competing confrontations on the streets and because of the political situation. On the one hand, the people who oppose um, the impeachment um, and the people who support the impeachment. Um, so because both sectors of society have been mobilizing. So it, it will be, I think it will be a very complicated situation. Um, I don't know whether, you know, I think the athletes will go for the competition. Having been one when I was young, they will go for the competition. That's, that's all you care about. Uh, I think it's more the economic impact in general because I think that the tourism for it is going to be very, very small compared to what it could have been. Right. So we know the ticket sales are already uh, way down. People are very nervous about going there for all of the reasons that we're talking about. So, James, I'm, I'm going to serve you up a, a very uh, easy lob that you can smash down. But, I mean, why are there Olympics in the first place? Well, I mean, the, the argument that gets put forth a lot is they are supposed to bring the world together, right? They are supposed to unite us around our admiration of the excellence of, of certain athletes. Uh, they are um, to bring they bring together people from all over the world with a common interest and with a common purpose uh, for, for, the, for competition. Uh, and as we say, as I said, the exaltation uh, of excellence. Is that just kind of a, a thing that gets trotted out that's been emptied out of its meaning over the decades? Well, I think they, the, the Olympic Committee has been riding that horse for a long time. But um, the, the thing is that it might have started out that way. But I don't think that really <clears throat> it's been well managed, shall we say, to put it mildly. And so it's really um, the – Original ideals of the Olympic uh, of, of the Olympic event have been lost. They've become a tail being wagged by the dog of commercial exploitation, and it just means that everything to do with the Olympics is such an enormous enterprise. I mean, Luis mentioned the the cost of the facilities that are not always usable by people who actually live there, and these incredible amounts of money that are involved with corruption, the, 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 the actual corruption of the sports themselves. I mean, I really feel for the athletes. I mean, how do you feel if you're an athlete who's really done it the right way, and then you're competing against people who've completely subverted that and, um, you know, have thumbed their noses? And so I think that can only exist in a situation where you really don't have a wide enough respect for the ideals of the Olympic uh, notion. And I think, I mean, some people have suggested, say, having one place on, on, the, on the planet where you build a sort of Olympic village and that's where you hold the Olympics. And the, the suggestion has been that that would be Greece, for example, which is a country that certainly could use the infrastructure and actually the tourism and so on. Um, that would be one possibility. But this business of moving every four years to a new city, which then gets uh, to spend this enormous amount of money, especially when you look at a country like Brazil, which has so many other problems. And <clears throat> added to that, when you've got a semi-crisis, well, it's not really a semi-crisis. For us, it is at the moment. But the crisis of Zika is something that really nobody knows exactly. Not enough research has been done yet. Nobody knows what's going to happen with this. Once the weather heats up in this country and in Europe and uh, the, there's thousands of people traveling by plane, we just don't know any of those things. And so it's like all of these are confluent reminders that maybe there's a better way to do it. I, I, I think that the way we're doing it now is just a, a, a sop to the wrong, inter, uh, to the wrong interests. It, it, I, I like uh, 
uh, I think we could extract from James's narrative there, Tracy. Uh, I like this slogan, kind of the only way that you could really enjoy these Olympics would be to completely discard all the ideals of the Olympics. Um, <laughs> you know, and then maybe, because this is, Juliet Maser has a terrific piece that starts on page one of the New York Times today. It's more specifically about the doping problem. But, you know, she sort of says, look, we have this capacity uh, or maybe it's an incapacity, an incapacity to break away from something that we really like. So, you know, no matter what we know about football, the terrible concussions, the fact that the NFL is is grossly cynical in, in cover, covering up the problem until recently. And I mean, no matter what we know, it doesn't matter if you like football, you're just going to keep watching football. And there's probably something similar that will happen with the Olympics. Olympics. It's so big uh, and so big for so many people that, uh, you know, I, I would imagine we're just going to do some compartmentalization as we watch it. Although I think I recall from the emails, you don't even like the Olympics that much. <laughs> Not particularly. <laughs> I, I'm sort of apathetic. I think I grew up watching like gymnastics and figure skating or something because that's what my parents put on. They said, you're a little girl, you'll like that. Um, but I've, I've never really voluntarily watched the Olympics. But I do understand sort of the escapist nature of sports. Um, you know, it's an opportunity for folks to sort of sit there and engage in something that, that is not connected to reality or that you can fairly easily disconnect from reality. So, you know, you sort of cherish that. And so you can put aside the, oh, you know, there are concussion problems um, in in NFL. There are doping problems in baseball and cycling. And although cycling has sort of suffered some of the consequences of that. And I'm sure that the same thing will happen with the Olympics. People, that they only happen so often, people will get swept up in the hype. There's an incredible marketing engine around it. And um, folks will may forget about some of the, these huge issues around it and still engage in that escapist mentality and, and enjoy it, um, which is a little disappointing because, you know, I don't really care myself, but um, I actually find sort of the culture and all of this around it much more interesting than the Olympics themselves. Sorry. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I mean, I'm enjoying this conversation a lot. I mean, I just wanted to add a a certain uh, couple of things in terms of the the nature of the Olympics and their origin and evolution. um, Is that, first of all, the Olympics um, were originally created in part because they were influenced by another thing that had been existing since the middle of the 19th century in Europe, which were they, they were called the universal expositions. So there were these world trade expositions where uh, each country, starting with London and Paris and so on, would show the nature of their development, all that they had you know, uh, produced in, in all kinds of things. And, and so the Olympics were created in a way to do that, but also to like sublimate might be the word, the, the rising competition between countries in Europe, right? And so part of the reason why they decided to uh, host them in different places was because co- countries from the beginning wanted to compete with each other, right, uh, for, for hosting the, the Olympics. Um, later, when we turn to the more recent decades, uh, countries like Mexico, which was the first quote-unquote third world country to host it, they wanted to showcase in order to say, okay, we belong in a more developed world. We, we should not be relegated in a certain way. And Brazil decided to do both the World Cup and, and, and the Olympics because it began to be promoted um, and it wanted to promote itself as one of the emerging countries that they were called the BRICS, right? Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Um, and at that point in the 90s and the decade of the 2000s, the Brazilian economy was growing exponentially. Um, and he committed to do this on the basis of thinking that that progress and economic development uh, was going to continue. 
and it crashed for a variety of reasons. So that the, the, the reason people want these Olympics to move is for nationalistic reasons from the beginning, when they started at the end of the 19th century, um, but also locally because the elites want to make substantial amount of money for themselves in these construction projects, the financing, and so on. Um, it has very little to do, really, with the population in general. Well, that, that, that to me is exactly what is the problem. I mean, if you're really going to look at it from the ideals of the original Olympic movement and those goals that you're describing about international cooperation and so on, you have to protect the quote-unquote amateur status of it. You have to be able to protect it from total commercial exploitation, which is what has happened. When there's total commercial exploitation, uh, people have nothing to lose by trying to subvert it. Uh, they make a lot of money by somehow you know, passing urine samples through a hole in the wall, finding a way that they can, they can get around it. That, and then you have these enormous conglomerates that are set up to, set, to actually build the infrastructure. And so the actual nature of somebody spending five years training to actually excel in their sport and actually be proud of something they, they've really done without drugs and that they've really accomplished this, that's like left in the dust. But, but even the athletes, <laughs> I, I think we should be a little bit – I want to follow on to what you're saying. In fact, I would say – we need to take it even beyond what you said, but starting with that, is that even it's not just that the athletes are like the innocents here, um, because a lot of the athletes um, have themselves, uh, they need the sponsorships from the commercial enterprises, right? So let's say that even they're in a sport where people don't think that there's professionalism in the, in the, in the traditional sense of the word. They depend on uh, sponsorships of shoes right, or It's like uniforms. college, basket, college basketball mean, so, is the same thing. So the commercialization of the sports... Um, has been going on even while, even before the the first Olympics that became more like professional athletes were allowed uh, in larger numbers were in Barcelona in '92. Even before that, commercialism was in the Olympics, in the competition, in the athletes, in sports in general, uh, becoming more and more you know a, a serious issue, larger. It's an enormous industry. But was it self perpetuating though? As yes. as it became yeah. more important, yes. then it got more involved. You know, so it's sort of at some point, where is it too much? Mm. <laughs> well, we're, we're going to have to break here in order to get to our other topics. Uh, it, it does seem as though if there were a way to inject sanity into all this, the Olympics would be postponed or maybe even moved. Obviously, that's not possible with $25 billion in some cost, but it's an unusually scary situation. I guess everybody should at least be aware of that. All right, we're back. This is The Nose with Tracy Wu Fastenberg and James Hanley and Luis Figueroa uh, and Nate Silver. He's not here, but Nate Silver is uh, tired of apologizing. He, of course, is the guy who sort of became the darling uh, of uh, elect electoral prognostication in the, in, cycle, in the cycles of 2008 and 2012 where he was Mr. Infallible. I mean, he, he got everything right. He got state by state, electoral total by electoral total, all the U.S. Senate races. He got everything right uh, using uh, um, a method which involves sort of taking raw data and crunching it. 
Uh, that's an oversimplification. But during this cycle, he has often appeared to have roughly the same grasp of what was unfolding as a reasonably intelligent poodle. But the same could be said for 99% of the people covering this race, irrespective of whether they're using data or shoe leather or political wisdom or Ouija boards. Uh, but some, there's something about the struggle, obviously, of these quantitative journalists, these data journalists, that, that has been uh, eliciting chuckles, particularly from some of the old school political reporters who felt dissed previously. I mean, in 2012 and 2008 to a lesser extent, people really sort of just said a lot, what does Nate say? I mean, I know people who are political professionals <laughs> who every day will go, well, what does Nate say today? Well, what does Nate say now? Uh, so this has put Nate in a very difficult position because he hasn't been really right about this. He's gotten all kinds of things wrong. And this has occasioned uh, some back and forth between him and the old school. I'm calling them data journalists versus dino journalists. Uh, and that has been topped off with a 6,000-word uh, essay by Nate Silver on um, how he got this wrong. So um, Tracy, we Fastenberg. I mean, in a way, we kind of want this, right? We want we want there to be certainties. We want there to be somebody like Nate Silver who can tell us what's really happening. I'm wondering what you make of this, in particular, his uh, his six thousand word mea culpa and apologetic. <laughs> you know, I, I absolutely want something that I can count on. I love things that are backed up by data and proof and, and that type of thing. But you also have to know that you know data is being analyzed by human beings and that it's fallible and you know in a lot of situations you can make data read the way you want it to um, by by certain tweaks and and whatnot and and I think there are probably so many people that did not want Trump to be a possibility that that could influence um, and I think you know I found the the piece incredibly long. Uh, I did have to read it twice and it made me feel like a a complete neophyte when it came to, you know, even reading anything statistical. But, um, you know, I'm not sure it was necessary. Uh, I found it sort of interesting that he did go into a lot of, you know, down and dirty details and a lot of it did make sense. Um, And it didn't quite feel like excuse making, but definitely a bit defensive. Well, first of all, I, just maybe to set this up a little bit more, I mean, there really has been tension between the old school journalists uh, and this new wave of data journalists, of, of which Nate Silver is just the biggest shining symbol. There, there's a whole bunch of them. Uh, and Jim Rutenberg, who writes, now writes the old David Carr media column of the New York Times, did a piece kind of saying, well, we all got it wrong. How did we all get it wrong? But then he really... He concentrated on the data journalists and their failure, uh, and and he concentrated it on that in the tone of an old style shoe leather journalist who said, "Wow, you know these guys, these young kids, they thought they could solve this whole thing from their laptops without ever leaving the room." And, you know, in fact, sometimes you have to leave the room. Maybe that's how you find out things that you don't understand about the Trump uh, insurgents. We actually uh, have a clip of Nate Silver and his gang (laughs) responding to Rutenberg's piece uh, on the elections podcast. I have to say I'm a huge fan of 538, which is uh, Silver's company uh, and, and site. I'm also kind of a big fan of Jim Rutenberg. But anyway, I, I listen to the podcast. And so uh, here they are getting really mad at Jim Rutenberg. Well, the number one question is, how did a demagogue win a major party nomination? You know, there was a piece over the weekend that came out about Donald Trump and um, and fact-checking. And not only does he have the worst record that factcheck.org and whatever else have ever tracked, but he doesn't even bother to respond to fact-checks anymore. It's a purely post-empirical world, but people, Republicans at least tend to trust him. They tend not to trust the media. A lot of chickens have come home to roost. You know, meanwhile, this is a guy that got blanket 
wall-to-wall coverage, um, 70% of the coverage at the GOP primary when you originally had 17 candidates. So, you know, first check your own bed and see if it's in order. If you're the New York Times media columnist and you think, oh, everything the Times did was fine and dandy, let's kind of take random pot shots at other people. And we, by the way, are saying, let's look at our process and see where our thought press was, was wrong and, and right and think about that. You know, to me, that's kind of smug, I suppose, number one, but also is why data journalism is going to triumph in the end is because we actually have a process toward improvement. That's part of the scientific method. When something is wrong, we reflect on it. Sometimes, by the way, you can overreact. You can say, um, you know what, this year you looked really smart if early on in the race you said, trust the polls, don't worry about endorsements, that's all crap, right? Four years ago, just the opposite was true. You look smart if you said that Herman Cain's going to fade and Gingrich and Santorum and Michelle Bachman. Um, so, you know, it's important not to overlearn those lessons, but it is important to kind of review your thought process. We've had a couple of pieces already. We have a couple more coming out. So I don't know. Later in that same podcast, they really started tearing into, tearing into Rutenberg himself, who they knew when uh, 538 was housed there at the New York Times. Uh, he was dismissive and snide and unhelpful and uh, rejecting uh, of, of their great wisdom. So, um, so first of all, James Hanley, is data journalism going to triumph in the end, to use their phrase? I think it's one of those things that it, it'll die of its own expectations. I, I just don't I – mean, <laughs> I think that that's why um, Nate Silver is in the position he's in because he was right the first time and he's convinced that he was right because he interpreted the data, which to a certain extent is true. But in politics and, well, in all kinds of fields, the first time is going to be the only time because by the time everybody's learned everything, there's all kinds of manipulations going on, number one. But there's also the nature – I mean he asked a very interesting – there was one, one question that came up in that uh, piece you just played saying how did a demagogue get to be where he is? Well, to me that's the very defini- definition of a demagogue because he's very clever. Uh, he's able to play on uh, the weaknesses of media and he's able to do things that – Uh, He can make threats. He can be racist. He can get away with all kinds of stuff and then pretend it was a joke and then uh, maybe come back with it in a different way. I mean how – it's not surprising that he's been able to get the response he's gotten not only from uh, the media but there's also other things that the media hasn't really made clear uh, and Nate Silver hasn't really addressed entirely which is that you're talking about the Republican primary here, a, a, a significantly small group of voters actually com- compared with the number of people who vote uh, in the Democratic primaries for example and so uh, the the fact that um, that Donald Trump could come where he is as a demagogue is not a surprise. Now, how do you quantify that if you're data-driven? And I just don't think that that's the entire answer. I think you use data to be sure, but you have to intuit the data as well and realize that some of the data you're going to be getting has been manipulated or is somehow not clearly supporting what you think is going to happen. And so I'd read that 6,000-word um, piece that he wrote. I didn't read the whole thing. I have to say, I kind of speed read it. But the tone of it to me was that he is really feeling insecure about the very foundation of what he says he is. 
And with good reason, I would say. Well, also, one of his explanations, kind of amusingly, is his first explanation. He has five different uh, areas that he covers. But the first area he covers is that basically because of a momentary uh, a bit of delu- self-delusion or something, that he and his staff did exactly what they accuse conventional dino journalism of doing, which is start with something that kind of makes sense to them and then start attaching certainties to it. And so basically what, what he's saying, if you parse it, is for a, just a brief interval, a brief deranged interval, we were engaging in the kind of foolish thinking that constitutes every waking moment of Jim Rutenberg's life uh, and all the other dino journalists that, that we hate so much. Um, so, Luis, you know, in a way, we're back to sports because Nate Silver and a lot of these guys, they come out of a sports background. Yep. And, and it is, and they say, he says in the piece, great poker, well, great poker player. Yeah, great poker player. Uh, and he says in the piece, you know, I mean, look, one night the Minnesota Timberwolves beat the Golden State Warriors, even though that's not supposed to happen. But, you know, here's, here's why it occasionally happens. Um, but, you know, I'm still not convinced that something like an election is, is uh, analogizes very well to or maps very well onto the way you try to figure out what's going to happen in sports. Well, I, I'll say this. I, 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 first of all, I'm going to, even though he's in Puerto Rico and probably not listening to this, um, but I want to give a big shout out to a professor of mine who uh, taught me the sociological statistical methods when I was an undergraduate in Puerto Rico, Juan Jose Valdrich, and I'll tell him later to, to listen to the podcast of this show. Because one of the things that he insisted, and all my other professors who taught me quantitative methods for a long time, is that the statistics are great, you have to choose which ones are the right statistical, uh, what is the data, and whatever, but it's what you input there, how you conceptualize it. Okay, so you could have, for example, two things that I'm going to say here. For James uh, or anyone else um, who might be uh, kind of like, oh, I don't want to read the 6,000 pages, let me give you the cliff notes in reverse, okay? <laughs> so here's the thing. If you do a search of the article, you will not find any of the following keywords anywhere in the article, right? So which tells you what they were inputting into the data or not, considering Industry, industrialization, income inequality, welfare, jobs, social class, poverty, free trade. Um, uh, there's only one mention of terrorism. I'll tell you in a moment what. No mention of ISIS, the Syrian refugees, Muslims, religion, immigration, Hispanics, nationalism, racism, white supremacy. None of these keywords appear in the article. So, so you can be a genius with the math, with the statistics. You can develop great, but if you do not think what you're putting into the equation, what are you going to do, right? And so the, the second point I want to make is people focus too much on what happened in the 08 and the 2012 presidential elections. And for whatever reason, I don't understand. They've overlooked what happened in the 2010 and the 2014 midterm elections, right? So I'll suggest this. Not everyone shows up to vote, and some people show up to vote in certain cycles more than others. In this primary season, actually, as it turns out, no pun intended, more people went to vote in the Republican primaries by a very significant margin than the number of people that went to vote in the Democratic primaries. So they feel more mobilized, more identified with the process. A lot of it was Trump bringing people from outside the traditional Republican Party. 
right? So I, I think that people just, they, you know, he says something that I really like in the article, okay, is that they continue to disbelieve the fact that all the polling data from the summer onwards show Trump leading. And they chose not to believe that and not think that this could be possible. Right. So I, I wanted to say a couple of things about this. First of all, I'm fascinated by this whole thing, and I'm fascinated by Silver and his work. I do listen to their podcast very carefully, and I think that they bring a lot of terrific things in there. And, and a lot of the stuff that we've just brought up here, they consider all of it, they can, they, and they have models for looking at stuff. And if they don't have a model, they build a model for looking at, say, the difference between the way people show up in midterm elections versus, uh, versus uh, presidential year elections. Almost anything you can think of, I've heard them talk about and talk about a model for it. And most recently, they were talking in a very fascinating way about what's some, sometimes called the Bradley phenomenon or the Tory phenomenon, which is people saying to pollsters that they're going to do something which they're actually not going to do or that they're not going to do something which they actually are going to do. Uh, and they just walk me through all their thinking about it and, you know, as I'm listening to the podcast. And it's just fascinating stuff. It's terrific stuff. But I think, Tracy, that one of the things that happened was, you know, they've been very critical of sort of, you know, old-fashioned shoe leather journalists who will go out there and talk to five people and, you know, build some anecdotal lead out of something a cab driver told them and stuff like that. And the irony is I think they made the problem worse because shoe leather, we're all of us journalists, we're a little bit lazy. And it's like, <laughs> you just read what they say. Like, why should I even go talk to the cab driver and the four <laughs> other people? Why don't I just figure out what Nate has figured out from the polls? And then go from there. Right. So... Well, that's unfortunate. Uh, but, but I mean, I guess what I'm really asking is, even as a, somebody who kind of consumes political journalism and wants to know what's go, what's going on, what do you, what do you, what's meaningful to you? I mean, you're just not going to read 5:38 all the time and say, "Well, now I know what's happening." No, I want a little bit of both, actually, because I think I think that you know, especially in this sort of unique year um, or unique election cycle, you know, there there are a lot of things that are sort of anomalies, and um, I, I think the you know, data can't always analyze and capture that because it's it's a moving target oftentimes. Um, so I want to know what the data is and I want to know what what those gentlemen are, are doing as they crunch their numbers. But I also like to hear, you know, sort of the old school way of doing things. Um, but and, and so I think that we are in a society where we do need both and, and we need to get off our duffs and make sure that we're sort of um, educating ourselves and not just relying on what others are telling us to believe. We have to wrap, wrap here pretty quickly just to get on to the next topic. But I just want to go back to what uh, to James, what Luis is saying over there, which is that there were all kinds of tripwires being kicked here uh, by Trump in a way that uh, would be difficult to measure for the reason that Silver says, because they didn't really have anything to compare it to. It was kind of a sample size of one. Um, and that's maybe the argument for fusing these two techniques. It's, you know, in baseball, there's this kind of sense, well, they probably don't pay enough attention to data. There's a lot of interesting data that, that old style people ignore. But at the same time, the data guys didn't understand some of the stuff that Luis is talking about. I think that's, ex that, I think that's exactly true. I, I just don't if, – if you look now at the vastness of data analysis that, that you can do, not only do you have a huge supply of data, but you can, you can massage it in very, it very quickly. And one of the things that's part of that is pattern recognition, for example, 
pattern recognition can be triggered by all sorts of uh, peripheral issues that really require somebody with a sense of history, somebody, an analytical journalist, for example, who can actually look at these numbers and suggest alternate outcomes and possibilities, something that informs you that is not just purely a set of numbers that is being interpreted by a mathematical formula, which is what pattern recognition ultimately is. And pattern recognition is a formula that has been written by a software writer. But even the, even the so-called regular, qualitative <coughs> um, analysts, journalists, pundits, mm. got it wrong. Oh, we got it wrong. Everybody got it wrong. So why was it that they got it wrong? Now, it's because they were not paying attention to certain things that a few people were. I mean, I was in this show in early September, right, uh, where we discussed the rise of Trump, and one of the things that we discussed was an article by Evan Osnos on white nationalists and so mm -hmm. on that was prescient. And in another show that I was here part of <laughs> months ago, one of the things that we discussed was David Frum in The Atlantic, yep. who was, for me, one of the best people throughout these last several months looking at the Trump phenomenon. Why, if those people were looking at the right things, mm -hmm. order the, the majority of the punditocracy in the major newspapers or television or even locally here in Connecticut, they were not thinking in those terms. All right, we have to stop there. We have, this is going to have to be a shorter uh, conversation than it deserves, but um, I'm the one who's responsible for bringing this up. I found myself reading a piece at Lit Hub, <laughs> Literary Hub, uh, by one Emily Hartnett. It's called How the Best Commencement Speech of All Time Was Bad for Literature. Um, I feel really, really bad for millennial writers because uh, they write these things and they have to have titles. It, can, it can't be like How a Thing Did a Thing. It has to be The Best Commencement Speech of All Time <laughs> Destroyed <laughs> Literature. <laughs> like you know, just uh, that's the way everything has to be marketed and packaged. They're talking about the David Foster Waller, w David Foster Wallace uh, speech to the uh, Kenyan uh, graduating class uh, in 2005. Uh, it was repackaged as something called uh, "This Is Water." Uh, you can buy the little book. We used to be able to buy the little book next to the uh, the cash register at a bookstore. Uh, it's just one of those things that kind of developed a little cachet. Um, and and in some ways. Um, Tracy, it was a speech about giving the speech, too, as, Fo as David Foster Wallace is kind of good at doing. It was calling attention to all the problems of giving a commencement address, all the anxieties uh, and sweat gland-related problems he was having giving a commencement address and all the pieties that have to be sort of uh, trumpeted out there during a commencement address. Um, and, and yet people really liked something about it. And as you said, it gets flung at you every year. Every year. Uh, I did a year at Kenyon, and I think that's partially why I would have graduated in 2012, so this would not have been my graduation speech. But I, I, I am sent this almost every year around this time. Um, I, I think what he did is he he packaged it in that sort of like self-deprecating way. Um, you know, even starting out talking about you know the sweating and the and the whatnot. Um, but what it is is you know it, it does boil down to a an inspirational you know, advice-giving commencement speech to a bunch of 21 and 22-year-olds about to embark on the world. You know, he just he just did it in a in a language um, that probably was more relatable um, for most folks. You know, he, he had those those lovely little anecdotes, um, but he called them out as being sort of lovely little anecdotes also. So you knew what you knew what they were. So you were almost more receptive to them. Um, I listened to it again last night and I was like, you know what? It, it's not that bad because it is what it is. It's a commencement speech. It is supposed to. It is supposed to be inspirational. It is. It is supposed to be what it is. He just packaged it a little differently. You know, a little less formally. A little less. Um, 
you know, varnished. And, and so it, it works and it probably worked really well for that audience and repeatedly each year for the past 11 years. You know, uh, James, I had many, many problems with this essay, although I found it fascinating. But one of the things she says is that giving a commencement speech is necessarily humiliating because you have to hew to all these conventions. And, and I find myself thinking that's not true. I mean, it's not true that it's necessarily humiliating and it's not true that you have to hew to any particular conventions. And, and I mean, I could very easily and was very easily easily able to find better commencement addresses that didn't do any of those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you can actually actually pretty much say what you want to say. But to me, there are other things that you could say. I, I mean, to me, a, a commencement address in a way is a kind of a performance. And I think David Foster Wallace did a great performance. And it, it was like um, like a literary work in a way. And it had the effect it did. I'm not sure that people at a commencement are really thinking in terms of is it inspirational? I don't. I, I don't buy that whole thing about inspirational um, addresses in that format, because, for instance, the elephant in the room for me is to think that when I was graduating from college or in the seventies, anyway, that that was a time when people actually lived in a society where education was thought to be a benefit for everybody, and thus the education would be something that everybody would pay for through government, through taxes, and so on. So what are all these people coming up with graduations now? They're sitting in an audience, and they're going to be stuck with you know over $100,000 of debt that they're going to have to pay that is going to really affect their lives, the kind of jobs they can get, and all of those things. And so to me, it's, it's an incredible conceit in a way to think of a, an inspirational graduation speech that comes along in the midst of a, a real difficulty for people starting out their lives with enormous debt. And the, the question I would ask if I were a speaker is, where the hell did that money go? I think I know. <laughs> I think you would only be asked to give one commencement address ever <laughs> after so, you asked yes. that question. So, yes, and actually there's a, an amazing um, – Vonnegut did a, a number of great commencement speeches and he, gave, he did one about pessimism yeah. uh, and about uh, – uh, the fact that things – he told the graduate things are going to get almost unimaginably worse and they're never going to get better. Uh, uh, but then at the end of it, he sort of made a kind of Bernie Sanders-like plea. This is like I think sometime in the 70s though, a Sanders-like plea for a kind of socialism. Well, Luis, as a college professor, you probably have to go to a lot of commencement addresses. I've been, I've been to a lot of them. Um, and um, since I was an undergraduate, even before my own um, – I, I, I would say, you know, the University of Puerto Rico should send me a check now because I'm going to do another shout out. <laughs> uh, my, my, uh, my commencement speaker was uh, one of the legendary figures in Latin American literature, Jorge Luis Borges um, from Argentina. It was amazing. Um, I mean, really. But there, there are a couple of things I want to point out. One is that the commencement ceremony and the speeches are not just for the undergraduates that are graduating, or even if it's master's or doctoral degrees in other places. It's also for the families, mm -hmm. for the relatives who are coming, who put so much effort in putting these children through you know, school and then college and so on. So there has to, the, the, the speaker has to keep that in mind, and not all speakers do that, right? The other thing, too, is that in uh, the, the speech by Debbie Foster Wallace, that was a classic example of postmodernism. Mm -hmm. he, he, which he was one of the greatest writers of postmodernism in this country, uh, is that he took an approach that had been developing in postmodernist uh, scholarship since at, the, at least the early 1980s. For example, in anthropology, I'll give you an example, which is the author 
gets away from the old conceit that you have to be like a voice of God, um, you know, above mm -hmm. the above all biases and so on. And so the, this, many authors began to say, no, this is my position. Uh, th this is where I come from to this topic. This is what I experienced while doing the research. This is what I think these topics are important. And you, and you include that in what you say. And so that developed, uh, you know, in the case of the before Sir Wallace, that's exactly what he was yeah, doing. Yeah, it was the calling attention. He's just calling to, attention to, to, to the, the experience. And so when you, when, Tracy, when you say what's more relatable, it's because he's not trying to speak to you from heavens like mm -hmm. Zeus. All right, we, have to, we really have to stop here. Or yeah, we'll sorry, have no time sorry. whatsoever. Um, just as we close here, I, I was thinking also that this uh, had that, that problem. You, this is Ralph Waldo Emerson giving what I think is the greatest commencement speech of all time, his speech to the Harvard Divinity School. There were actually seven people graduating. Uh, six of them showed up. The guy who didn't show up, I just feel like you missed the greatest commencement speech of all time. The sentiment of virtue is a reverence and delight in the presence of certain divine laws. It perceives that this homely game of life we play covers under... Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Calling. The part of Bill Curry was played by Henry David Thoreau. For show pages, articles, and the whitewater kayaking footage of the Here and Now staff, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, it's The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. Now we're going to recommend some things. You'll each have about 30 to 45 seconds max. Go ahead, Tracy. All right. This Sunday, CT Improv is presenting uh, Trump versus Bernie, which is a satirical comedy sketch with members of the Upright Citizens Brigade. So that's at 7 p.m. at Infinity Hall. You can get tickets at eventbrite.com. Uh, our wonderful Julia Pistel, who I work for at, at the Tween House and you do work with here, um, is part of CT Improv and, and uh, told me that it will be fantastic. Um, on November 12th, the Mark Twain House and Museum is bringing Ira Glass of This American Voice, um, This American Life, to uh, the Bushnell. Uh, tickets are on sale now at bushnell.org. All right. James, what have you got? Um, uh, just to eclipse uh, Nate Silver's uh, avalanche of data, um, uh, GPS is the thing we should think about and pos possibly worry about. There's a book by Greg Milner called uh, Pinpoint, which is all about how we're totally, completely dependent. It's also the history, but it's completely dependent on GPS, on satellites that still work. Uh, the other thing is May 29th through June 2nd at Cine Studio, we're showing a brand new film print, physical film print of uh, Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Mm. Mm. All right. Uh, wow. uh, and Luis, what have you got? Um, quickly, I want to first of all congratulate um, Ria Artways, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary. Tomorrow he has a, a gala celebrating it. Uh, but also endorse um, theintercept.com is the address, theintercept.com. This is a blog that uh, Glenn Gilwald, uh, the journalist, and Laura Poitras, the documentary filmmaker, created in the aftermath of the Edward Snowden revelations that they brought out. So The Intercept, because among other things, it is a good place to read about what's going on in Brazil today because Greenwald lives in Rio de Janeiro. Right. And, you know, so I, I, theintercept.com. Uh, very quickly, I'll endorse uh, Occupied on Netflix. This is a Norwegian series about a very subtle Russian takeover uh, of Norway. It's a fictional series. Uh, relax, they haven't done it. Uh, <laughs> but it's very, it's very smart. It's very subtle. I also want to just endorse going to Stonington on a Saturday. Stonington is such a beautiful little uh, sort of fishing style community anyway with an incredible 
whole farmer's market uh, indoors at the Velvet Mill, moving out to the docks pretty soon. Uh, you can also buy seafood down right, the, right down on the docks from the fishermen. Just a great place. Stonington, right on the corner of our state. Thanks to Luis and to Tracy and James. Finally, graduates, this thought. If you try really hard, you can achieve anything, except for pleasing everybody. There's a guy in Scandinavia who can do it, I think. But you, no. Congratulations, class of 2016.